Good morning. How are you guys doing this morning? Good and a little chilly, a little cold. Happy New Year's. Uh, it's good to be here with you all. My name is John Anderson, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Door Creek Church. Uh, and I want to start off with something a little different than usual this morning. We're going to have a little crowd participation. So you guys ready? Actually, as I said that, I saw like four simultaneous yawns. So that is not a good sign. All right, so here's what I want to do. I'm just going to ask you a few questions and you raise your hand, okay? Um, So how many of you have ever, in your lifetime, ever made a New Year's resolution? Raise your hand. Yeah, the vast majority of the room. All right, how many of you uh, have made a New Year's resolution this year? Raise your hand. Awesome. Wow, okay, so uh, way down, but you know, actually last night it was like four people, so... You guys are a little more advanced, so good job. Now, here's the, the ultimate question. How many of you have ever uh, kept a New Year's resolution for at least six months, ever, in your life? Wow, like four of you. You guys should like get an award or something. Well done. Okay, so here's a totally made-up statistic. Um, but did you know that 80% of all New Year's resolutions are related to weight loss or more exercise? I have no idea if that's true. But... I do know that that's a very common uh, New Year's resolution, along with a couple other kind of almost cliche ones. So what I wanted to do this morning is start things off with just sharing a few uh, potential New Year's resolutions with you that hopefully can help you kind of break out of the mold, or maybe for most of you it looks like re-enter the game, all right? And uh, these are New Year's resolutions that I collected from some friends, from strangers online. And again, you can adopt any, all of these if you're an overachiever, or if not, just hopefully they'll spark some creativity, all right? So here are a top nine list of potential New Year's resolutions. It was going to be top 10, and then I just didn't want to finish. So that seemed appropriate to the topic. Uh, (laughs) All right, so number nine of potential New Year's resolutions you may want to adopt. Number nine, finish a chapstick. Uh, I I help clean our house, and I find these like all over the place, and they're all like half to three quarters gone. And at that point, it's just gross. Make this the year? Yes, Amen. Finish one. Okay, number, number eight. Uh, separate your colors from your whites. So uh, I actually do laundry, and I've been doing laundry for a long time, and my mom taught me that this is very important. I've never done it. So this could be the year to figure out why that matters. Uh, number seven. Don't send a text to someone sitting in the same room. People talk to one another. Let's be friendly once again. All right, uh, number six. Don't buy things from late-night infomercials. They are never as good as they seem at 3 a.m. Even that knife that, like, cuts through everything, not as awesome as it looks then. All right, number five. This is probably my favorite. Uh, Do sing out loud in your car. Are you ever driving and you look to the, like, next to you while you're driving and you see that person just, like, belting it out? You know what I'm talking about? How many of you have ever seen this? Yes, like most of you. Yeah, that's awesome. Does that not make your day? Be that person this year. All right, number uh, four. Uh, Do less laundry and use more deodorant. (laughs) Think of all the time you'd save. Think of what it would be like when somebody joined us for the first time. They'd be like, wow, Door Creek. They make quite the first impression. (laughs) All right, number three. Now, just bear with me because this might seem negative, but just trust me for a moment. Number three, gain weight, sleep less, and save less money. Here's how I see this one. If you keep it, you've kept a New Year's resolution. And if you don't, you win. (laughs) So it's really a win-win. 
Strongly consider that one. Uh, number two. Uh, and this is coming from recent life experience here. Uh, floss at least three times this year. I recently went to my dentist. I'm pretty sure that's what he said. So I'm trying to take that one to heart. And number one of New Year's resolutions I'd love for you to consider is post real life pictures online. You know what I'm talking about? Like most of the time you put everybody smiling. They're all dressed up. The house is clean. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to like, as soon as you get out of bed, take that selfie. Like, <laughs> or like maybe your kids just got in a huge fight. Take a picture of that. Share that with the world. Your house is a disaster. Let us see that. Okay. All right. So hopefully this has helped inspire you to think about how you want to live about life change. And serious or not, you know, New Year's resolutions, that's kind of a really, really common theme uh, this time of year. And really, the whole process is about uh, trying to recenter our lives about the things that are important to us, whether that's exercise, time with friends, time with family, uh, how we spend our money, and even with our faith. And the passage that we're going to look at today, uh, we didn't plan for this, but it actually fits perfect with this topic of trying to figure out what is most important to us. And, and, and here's my goal, and here's what I hope happens for all of us in this room, is that either sometime today or throughout this week, that because of what we see in the book of Luke, that you would take at least a few moments to really consider and ponder and reflect upon what are the top priorities in your life? What are those things that are most important to you? So that's my goal for this, this time together. Uh, now, over the past few months, if you're just kind of joining us, uh, I'm going to really quickly catch you up to speed. So we've been going through the book of Luke now for uh, several months, actually. And if you look at the very first few verses, you see the author Luke, his thesis statement, his, the whole point of writing this book, he spells it out for us. And so I just want to read this to us once again. He says this in the first chapter. He says, or he writes, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So that's who he's writing to so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And so Luke is writing this book to make the case that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the one that the Jewish people had been waiting for. He was the one that was coming to bring life and hope to all people. And so he's just making this case. And he's also making the case that all of us are called to follow him to become like him, or, or in you know, a biblical or church definition of that, to become disciples. And uh, you may notice, as we read through Luke, or part of Luke chapter 9 today, that there's actually this significant sh- literary shift that takes place during the ch- chapter 9. And uh, it's this shift in tone, because so far the book, up through the first eight chapters, has been about Jesus kind of coming onto the scene. And so he's going around, he's teaching, he's healing, he's living out the kingdom of God and what that looks like. And there's this buzz growing. People are starting to talk. Is he the one? Is he the one? Did you see that? Did you witness that? Did you hear that? Is he the one we've been waiting for? But now Luke takes us in a new direction. And he takes us on what's known as uh, the path to Jerusalem. And this is a path, this is uh, a journey towards Christ's death on the cross, his suffering and rejection. And so what you start to see throughout the book from this point on is that Jesus is reminding those around him over and over again in this very somber way that he is about to be rejected, that he's about to suffer, and that he's about to die. But no matter how much he talks about this, the disciples, and really everybody around him, they just can't seem to get this. They can't get their minds around this, this what Jesus is telling them. 
In fact, uh, just a few verses earlier than the passage we're going to look at, um, in the passage that Bob taught on last week, you see that Peter correctly identifies Jesus for who he is. Remember, Jesus is saying, who do people say I am? And they're like, you know, a prophet, all these different people. And Peter says, you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, yes, you get it. You got it. That's a huge insight. But even Peter and those closest to Jesus, they cannot get their minds around the idea that the Messiah has come to suffer and to die. And his disciples, they, they don't know what that means for them either as followers of Jesus. And so as we work through the, the second half of Luke chapter 9 today, Jesus is going to be teaching about the life of discipleship. And we're going to see four marks of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. And the four things that we're going to see are just as true for us here today as they were for back then. So with all that said, take your Bibles or your phones or whatever you're following along with and turn to uh, Luke chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 28. So Luke 9, verse 28. All right, Luke 9, 28. Here we go. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. His clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the, the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, M- Master, it, it is good for us to be here. Let, let's put up three shelters, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He, he didn't know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid. As they entered the cloud, a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. And so the story starts off like this. It starts off with Jesus taking Peter, John, and James up onto this mountaintop to pray. And in this story, there's really a, a, just a, a whole bunch of really incredible and really cool parallels between this story and the story of when Moses goes up onto the mountain to meet with God in the book of Exodus, right? When the Israelites have left Egypt and they're in the wilderness. And there's also these really uh, neat parallels between this story and earlier in Luke chapter 3 when Jesus is baptized and, and God's voice comes down and says, this is my son. And in both cases, uh, Luke is pulling from Israelite history as well as kind of earlier in Jesus' ministry to point out, to the fact, point out the fact that Jesus is powerful and that he's unique. In fact, he, he's greater than Moses or Elijah. Now, when I, when I share that with us, like, you might be like, yeah, duh, right? Like, I get it. Jesus is greater. Big deal. But for the early, the early audience, the people that this was initially written to, that was a huge deal because Moses and Elijah, these were heroes of the faith. These were some of the greatest men to have ever lived out of the nation of Israel. And so they were admired. They were looked up to. And to say Jesus was greater, that was saying something. And not only that, but we see that Jesus was chosen. And the disciples are commanded to, they're told to, and and pay very close attention to this. It's very simple, but very important, because it runs through the entire rest of the part, or the passages that we're going to read today. They're told to 
listen to him. Now, you might think that after such a powerful demonstration, right? Like they saw Jesus like glowing like lightning. They heard this voice from the, the clouds. They, they saw people come back from the dead to talk with Jesus. That the disciples, they would probably never deal with doubt again, right? Like how many times have we said, man, if I could just hear God's voice, if I could just see him, then I would know. I wouldn't struggle with doubt. That wouldn't be one of my issues. And yet, if you know the rest of the story, in all the Gospels, Doubt is a really significant reality for all the disciples, including those closest to Jesus, right up to the point when he's taken from earth. And I think one of the reasons for that is that significant doubt was a challenge because Jesus' pathway was so unexpected. Nobody saw this coming. The disciples really believed that the Messiah had come to set them and the rest of the Jewish people free from Roman control. And that was one of the things that they were just, they were reminded of that daily, right? They'd walk around and there were Roman soldiers. They were paying taxes. They were, they were being suppressed by this foreign government. And they, they envisioned that Jesus was going to come in and take control and renew things back to the national hope that they had believed was part of their past. And they correctly, they got the first part right, right? They understood that he was the Messiah. But they deeply misunderstood the mission that Jesus was on. And here's the thing about that. I think we can have that tendency as well. We can, we can uh, cognitively and you know, even in our hearts uh, affirm the fact that Jesus is God, that he is great, that he is powerful, that he has control over all things. But we can deeply misunderstand how he's using that power to redeem the world around us. And it can be really natural for us, and I know this because it's true in my life all the time, to, to uh, see how God is powerful and see how, and have an idea of how he should be using that power in the world and how I fit into that plan. But what I'm actually doing, when I think most of us can tend to do, is actually fit God into our plans. And so here's uh, what discipleship looks like in its most general sense. I just want to put these words even up on the screen. Discipleship is about this, is recognizing the true identity of Christ and then listening to and following him wherever he leads, even into the unknown, which is the title of today's message. So let's continue the story and see what that looks like. Uh, Verse 37. Verse 37. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth, and it scarcely ever leaves him. It is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they they could not. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. And so right after this incredible scene where they're on this mountaintop, Jesus comes down and re-enters broken and messy human reality. And, And here it is again. Here's another person possessed by an evil spirit, in need of healing. This time, it's a boy, a child, an only child. 
And his father's coming to Jesus as a last hope, saying, I beg you, I need your help. And this time, the disciples were unable to cast out the spirit to bring healing. And the reason we see for that is because they lack trust in Jesus. And so Jesus directs a rebuke at his disciples because of their lack of trust. Because he can be trusted. He has the power over all things. But if and when the disciples uh, act on their own, they find out that they are useless, useless in the face of evil. And so, as we find these four marks of discipleship, here's our first one. Someone who's a disciple is someone who trusts God fully. If we want to follow Jesus, we need to learn to trust God fully. And, and over, this takes time, right? It, you have to grow to trust him fully. And if we're honest, like this is easy to say, right? Especially when you're gathered together in a church context, uh, trusting God, yeah, 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 that's what we do, yay. But like, let's just be honest for a moment. That's hard, right? Because God doesn't always do the things that I think he should do. He doesn't work in the way that I think he should work. But what we see here is that when we do trust him, he has the power to defeat evil. And not just defeat evil, but do it in such a way that brings amazement at the greatness of God. All right, let's continue the story. Verse 43. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them. So they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask about it. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. Master, said John, We saw someone driving out demons in your name, and and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. Okay, so let's just kind of walk through this again because I I find this part of the story so incredible. All right, so here's what's happening. Jesus has just healed this boy, right? And and the crowd, there's there's this awe. There's this, just like if you can imagine yourself there, there's like this energy in this space. And people, I imagine, are, are kind of whispering, like, did you see that? I've heard the stories, but did you see that? That's amazing. I've, I've heard about this guy. It, maybe he's the one. Is he the one? I think he might be the one. And Jesus, instead of, like, doing his next, you know, healing, his next miracle, just to kind of prove that he's the one to really drive it home, what he does instead is he, dry, he pulls the people around him together, and he totally changes the tone. He says, I'm about to be betrayed. I'm about to be arrested. And the disciples don't get that. Instead, what they do is then they break into this argument about who's going to be the greatest, which I think is such a, like an incredible response, right? Like Jesus just warned you something. You're like, oh, well, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't really understand what you're saying, but I think I might be the greatest. Like what? I don't, it took me a long time to understand like how they possibly could have this dialogue. But here's what I think is happening here is that everything is going right, right? Like everything is going according to, the plan. Jesus is now perfectly positioned to move into his rule. And, and the, 
the disciples, they're sensing this, right? They're sensing that Jesus coming into power, it's imminent. It's about to happen. And so they're excited. And here's how I imagine their, their line of thought went. It's something like this. Like, okay, Jesus is about to move into power. And we, being the guys who've kind of hung out with him since the very beginning, through thick and thin, when he moves into power, we're going to go with him. Because that's how things work. That's awesome. The only question is, which job are we going to get? And suddenly they start to bicker and banter about like who's actually been the most loyal to Jesus. Who's going to be the position of power and authority? And I love Jesus' response here. He just graciously, patiently reminds them that the kingdom of God is not like the kingdom of people. In the kingdom of people, power equals authority and most often superiority. But the kingdom of God is a place of humility. And Jesus is calling his followers away from pursuing status and power. And so a mark of a disciple is someone who doesn't really care that much about where they fit on the corporate ladder. This does not consume their thoughts and their lives. Another mark of a disciple is someone who's not really, they know that their value, their worth as a human being is based only on the fact that they're made in the image of God. And not only all that, but we see in verse 49 and 50 that discipleship is not this exclusive club. It's not just for the few people and everybody else is left out. In fact, pursuing status and being exclusive, those are both, both destructive forms of elitism that erode the very foundation of the gospel message that it is for all people, that is an invitation to everyone. And so this, this sort of thing, again, I think is something that we can easily struggle with, right? Because this is how the world around us is, is structured. This is the air we breathe. This is how our culture works. It is a tiered system, right? First chair, better than second chair. CEO, better than entry-level job. Head coach, better than assistant coach. And so on and so forth. But in the kingdom of God, there's this equal playing field when it comes to greatness. Greatness is about our heart attitude of humility. And, and here's the amazing thing about it is our greatness is not at the expense of somebody else. We're not great because they're not, right? There's the opportunity in the kingdom of God for all to be great. And God's invitation into the kingdom is open to everybody. No matter what your background is, no matter what family you were born into, no matter what you've done or what you're going to do, Jesus is waiting with open arms saying, come to me, find life and hope in me. And so here's our second mark of a disciple. Is that following Jesus is not about striving for more power, influence, and prestige. But instead, it's about humbly using our power to serve others around us. So let's go back to the story. Verse 51. As the time approached uh, for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading to Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. 
All right, so verse 51, this makes Jesus' mission and his intentionality very clear. It says this, that he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now, this was, this was not the expected pathway. This was not the expected journey. This is not what people thought was coming. Because this was a pathway that was going to lead to rejection, to suffering, and to death. And we see in this part of the story that Jesus' rejection, it was actually widespread. In fact, pretty soon, just about everybody is going to reject him. It wasn't limited just to the religious leaders. But Luke's point here is not about his rejection, because that's already been anticipated. Rather, his point is is Jesus' reaction to it. Because notice what the disciples do when they experience rejection. They want to bring down the wrath of God upon these people. They want to take these people and make them a lesson to the rest of the world that when you reject Jesus, this is going to happen to you. And Jesus rebukes them for that. 1 Peter 3 says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. So Jesus is not vindictive towards those who reject him. Instead, he's patient, loving, gracious, wanting all to come and find life and hope in him. And so, here's a third mark of a disciple. is if we're following him, we too are patient, wanting all to find life and hope in him. Which brings up a couple, I think, good questions for us to really ponder. Are we like that? Do we really want all people to find life and hope in Jesus? Or maybe another way to say it um, would be, is there anybody that I, that you, would actually kind of love to see the wrath, the judgment of God come down upon them so that they might be a lesson to the world so that you should not be like them, so that people would know? Because if we have that, That's not like Jesus. That's something we need to repent of. Let's jump back into the story one uh, last time. Verse 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And so this final section is about the centrality and the challenge and the immediacy of being a disciple. So Jesus says to the first guy, he says, following me, it's not an easy path. In fact, it's very difficult. And the second one, he says that following me, it needs to be of utmost priority. That no excuse, no matter how good it is, should get in the way of being a disciple. And then with the final man, he uses this image of plowing a straight line. And he says to do that successfully, you need to look where you're going, right? Like it takes some focus to do that the right way. 
And it's like that with following Jesus. It takes some focus. You need to be looking where you're going. And so here's the fourth and final mark of a disciple that we see in this text. And it's this. That following Jesus is to be the central, defining resolution of our life. It's pretty intense. Here's how one commentary described this passage that I just read. I love how they say this. Discipleship is not a second job, a moonlighting task, an ice cream social, or a hobby. It is a product of God's calling and should be pursued with appropriate seriousness. And so there's this common thread that runs through the entire passage that we read today of this invitation to listen to and to follow Jesus wherever he's going, even into the unknown. We're called to to follow him even in the face of rejection without considering highly our worldly status and with great single-mindedness. And that's the call of a disciple. Uh, uh, Paul sums it up really succinctly this way. In Philippians 1.21, he says this, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And so if there's this annual resolution at all found in Scripture, it would be this, to live as fully devoted disciples, followers of Christ, listening to and following him no matter where he takes us. And that that would be the centrally most important thing in our lives, way above and beyond everything else. So I just want to take a a moment to have a reality check. Because really... Like, really, that's saying, that seems awfully intense. Like, I'm, I'm a husband, a father, I've got a job, I've got hobbies, we all do things, we're all busy people. Are you saying, like, really? Like, I don't even know many people who live like this. Really? But the reason Jesus wants us to trust him so fully, to follow him so completely, is because he is the only person only person who is truly trustworthy. He's the only one who will never fail, never stop loving you, never give up, and never let go. He is the only pathway to life and to hope. Uh, Paul writes about God's love this way, and I, I think this is such a powerful and beautiful picture. He says this, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth or anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. If, if we listen to and follow Jesus, we're able to do that because we actively trust and believe that he loves us and cares for us. Um, as you may know, I, uh, I have two kids. Um, four and one and a half year old. I don't have pictures of them like RD does every week, but uh, they're very cute. Um, arguably cuter than the twins. I don't know. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, I'm sure that's not true. Um, but they are in this developmental stage right now where they are building their immune system, uh, which is a fancy way of saying they get sick a lot. And uh, Christmas time, we found as parents, is a predictable time of the year for them to get sick. Um, if you're parents, I'm sure you probably experienced that yourself. It's just, I think it's, you know, a change of schedule and all the people around and just all things kind of get thrown up in the air and they tend to always get sick. And sure enough, uh, last week, both our kids came down with pink eye. 
And uh, yeah, uh, pink eye is highly contagious, as you probably know, and also just kind of gross. And so as their eyes started changing color a little bit and that gunk started collecting around their eyes, um, we as parents rushed out as quickly as possible and got these eye drops that we had to put in their eyes every three hours. And, um, and you have to do it for like a full week in a row. And um, I don't know about if you have kids or what they're like, but I'll tell you about my kids. They do not like anybody, including their parents, putting foreign liquid in their eye. Like, I think there's something very human and genetically we're predisposed to not letting that happen. Um, and so the only way we found that we could successfully do this is that my wife would hold the children down very lovingly uh, while I would get the lucky job of, like, peeling back their eyelids and dropping in the drops. And the first few times we did this, oh, my goodness. Like, I thought somebody was going to get called on us. This did not look good. There was, like, screaming and crying and kicking. It, it was chaos. Because we're doing it with one kid, and the other's like, I'm next. <laughs> and, uh, but this amazing thing happened is that we, as we continued to do it, at, you know, not exactly in line, but over time they got calmer and calmer until the last couple days of doing this, they would just lie in my wife's arms and just let us drop the drops in their eyes. And they, they didn't understand uh, that what we were doing for them was for their good. Like, they don't really comprehend these kinds of things, uh, at least certainly not at first. But what they did understand is that we were asking them to do something, and they trusted us. And over time, they found that we were trustworthy. And it's the same way with following Jesus. We, we may not know where he's going or why he's taking us there. We may not understand it all. In fact, there's often times where we may go kicking and screaming and crying out, saying, I think I am better off on my own. But we follow if we trust him. Uh, Romans 8.28 says this, And we know that all things, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Do we actively believe that? Because listening to and following Jesus, that's, it's really hard. It's very difficult. Uh, theologian Dallas Willard writes this in his book, uh, The Spirit of the Disciplines. And I've got a quote. The words will be up on the screen because it's kind of long, so just follow along with me. Experience teaches that almost everything worth doing in human life is very difficult in its early stages. And the good we're aiming at is never available at first to strengthen us when we seem to need it most. Think of all the projects, all the resolutions we begin and never finish. Starting is easy. Following through is hard. Few people get very far in most activities, even those at which we all long to excel. While this is obviously true in the arts and sports, it's just as true in activities such as communicating with people, making money, directing a group activity, or caring for honeybees. And we are not exempted from this rule when we enter the kingdom of grace. Jesus wants all of you. He wants all of me. He wants all of us. And can we say, like Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. As we enter this new year, let me just articulate my hope for us as a community. Is can we be committed to listening to and to following Jesus wherever he leads? Can that become the centrally most important thing in our lives? 
And so as we close, I just want to invite each of you in just a minute here to take a few moments to listen to you and to talk with God. And maybe this is a time for you to be honest with God about whatever it is that's preventing you from trusting Him fully. Uh, or maybe this is a time for you to commit or, or to recommit to listening to Him, to reading His Word, and just to hold out your hands and ask Him to help you let go of whatever that thing is, whatever those things are that are holding you back from following Him. Because here's the truth. We're a community of potential disciples. But we have the opportunity to recommit ourselves to him. And we have an opportunity to confess whatever things that have replaced Christ at the center of our lives and to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. May this be a year of listening to you and following Jesus wherever he takes us. Now what I want to do is, as we close here today is just take about 30 seconds to just sit in silence. And here's what I want to ask you to do. is During that, that short time, I want you to just to, between you and God, I want you to be honest about do you really trust him? Are you willing to follow him? And is that the centrally most important thing in your life? And if not, just to, to try to give up those things, just name those things. And if this is a time that, you know, just feels weird to you or awkward, it's great. We're so glad you're here. I just invite you to just sit in silence. We're just going to do this for about 30 seconds, and then I'll close our time in prayer. So let's just go into that time. God, I thank you that you love us and that you are patient and gracious with us. And I just right now in front of this community, I want to offer myself to you and say that I want to follow you and that to be the centrally most important thing in my life. And I pray for all of us as a community that you would help us to listen to you and to follow you wherever you lead and that that would be the most important thing in our lives as individuals and as a community. Help us to pray for one another, encourage one another, support each other, challenge each other to that end, and to pick each other up when we fall down. And then it might be to your glory and in your name. Amen.